Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Andrew Spurrier-Dawes, a Welsh Ironman better known by his initials that sound like a mashup between a hallucinogenic drug and a behavioural disorder. ASD is currently a global digital director at Mediacom, where he has worked on brands including Mars Food, Sky and Tesco. He also co-hosts two successful podcasts, Connected, where he talks to the greatest names in marketing, technology and beyond, and Echoes of Glory, a podcast dedicated to the brilliant Tottenham Hotspur. Andrew says, In the future, we will need to separate the internet into three spaces. Services, information, and content. The beauty of this is that it will create areas of trust, curation, and data. Welcome to the show, ASD. Thank you very much. I've never been so complimented i'm i'm going back to my wedding all my birthdays <laughs> i wish my wife was in <laughs> the room from here. <laughs> yeah. thank you very much quick fire mac or pc pc i i've got more brain cells i need more than one button <laughs> iron man or welshman welshman lindy long or popty ping i mean i i that is a very pot. I mean, my initial answer is Popty Ping, but I just, they're very pot. It's like Kutch. It's a bit Gavin and Stacey. It's, it's pop Welsh, not deep Welsh. <laughs> Cliff Jones or Gareth Bale? Cliff Jones. The Young Ones or Bottom? Young Ones. The Scissor Sisters or the Blues Brothers? Blues Brothers. What is that? What is that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I don't, there's no logic. <laughs> <laughs> Last one. Should I stay or should I go? Oh, that's Pop Clash, and Clash is my favourite band. Uh, you should stay, mate. I, you know, I love you very much. <laughs> Brilliant. So, ASD, so, so, how did it all start for you? So, what was your first ever job, and then what was your first kind of proper marketing type gig? First job was McDonald's. I went for. I got my. I had an interview. Uh, I went in a suit into McDonald's, and I had shoes on. I had my dad's suit. I went in and. Really, all I needed to do was prove I spoke English. Um, actually, the reason I was wearing a suit is because I had a funeral to go to straight after, and I got the job on the spot, so I was buzzing throughout the funeral. It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> but that is still one of the greatest jobs I've ever had. Uh, I absolutely loved that job. I had so many. I've got so many stories from McDonald's, uh, from missing out on an armed robbery, by I mean thirty seconds to I w- and you can look that's Cardiff Gate hold up very quickly that I was meant I usually I did the op- open so I used to get there at half five um, and I used to cycle there so I used to get there a quarter of an hour early because I'm early for everything the Russian army have gotten a saying that you either there's no no such thing as on time you're either early or you're late and I've always believed in that so I'm always early to my shifts and my dad was awake at five in the morning for no reason I've never seen him awake so he said I'll give you a lift and so I was on time at 5 30 in that time a guy with a sawn off shotgun and an axe came to our McDonald's and the two managers who were there opening who got there a bit early they put them they tied them up on the floor they hit one of them in the ear with the butt of the shotgun he became an alcoholic the other one who got tied up became a millionaire a few months later so if you search Cardiff Gate millionaire He's at 1.3 million pounds and he's back in McDonald's now. The the newspaper article when it said Luke and his wife, or his Mrs. Emma, uh, went on a shopping spree in Next. And I loved that. I loved that. And that's why I loved it. It was just full of normal people. It was my people, which I, I struggled with. Then I also worked at Pizza Hut when I was in uni. I loved that job as well. One of my proudest professional achievements is I got working part time. So I worked about three days a week while I was doing uni because I paid my own way. Uh, I, I rose to assistant store manager within six months. Bossed that. Uh, and then uni, I didn't go to graduation. I, I, I never, I'm not very good with just tradition for the sake of tradition. Didn't bother. Came, I looked on Milk Round, every job I could see in London, uh, applied for it. 
for no reason other than that I knew I needed to be away from home. I loved home, but there's there's reasons we might get into why I needed to have that space. London seemed to be where it was at. And I failed a job interview for Sky Sports News where they for to be a subtitler. And that was the world's worst job. So it's sitting there with, and I love Sky, with the news coming in on one ear and you speak it into a, into a mic. And then it, it the um, program recognizes your voice and it spits out the subtitles. And you had to have an amazing spelling range because, you know, when you're in the pub and you're seeing Sky Sports News and you see the words change as, as while they're on screen. That is because there's people there editing it as it goes out. So you've, you've got to be multitasking and saying it and editing it. But they gave me a 50-word spelling test. And, I mean, I grew up with spell checker. So why do I need to know how accommodation <laughs> is spelled? I mean, serious. I know there's a double C and a double M now, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> failed the interview, failed the job interview for a research company because they're idiots. And then I walked into uh, Walker Media and guy called simon uh i didn't i had two earrings at the time and that is another story from mcdonald's but i'm not going to go into that but it involves an orgy and avoiding an orgy and i've got i've got chat i was really raw like really raw i was an idiot back then i didn't know how to dress didn't know what smart casual was didn't really know i didn't you know i didn't really know how to write an email didn't know how to speak formally didn't know how to dress clients all of that stuff but I can hold information in my head. I can work things out. And I, I like to think there's a bit about me because I've worked hard at, at educating myself. And he took a chance on me, Simon Davis. And that was my first job in media, in Walker Media. And it was the best job ever because Walker at that time was top five, top six agency, but was small, independent and punchy. And the there was always an interesting point about the revenue per head. We had more revenue per head, which doesn't mean I was paid more, quite the opposite probably, in fact, but it meant that we did more work because we had fewer people. So I just learned how to do everything. Like I look at when you're in bigger agencies and you've got departments who do this, departments who do that, you know, trafficking and planning and buying. I did all of it and it just gave me an incredible base. And they're, they're quite, it was quite, it wasn't aggressive, but it was just a, you had to be able to stand on your own two feet there. And I think if you made it there, you can see a lot of people who could make it anywhere. And I, I loved Walker for it. I still feel very much aligned to that independent sparky nature. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. And, and you learned everything. What did you learn from, um, there was a director called Clive, I understand he, he, he taught you not to be a cunt or told you not to be a cunt. Yeah. So there was, so this was, I, I, there was a, a girl joining the team. Um, so we, we both started. So I felt very, I'm a very competitive person to the point. I'm very competitive myself. I'm very, just of everything, not in a bad way, just in my head. And uh, I was making mistakes because I was an idiot back then. And this, they were bringing a girl to the team to sort of help with the workload. And I didn't see that as a compliment to, to make, or to, I didn't really understand how I can work with people then. And I went off, I took him into a meeting room. I went off on him. And it was actually the first day of his new AD as well. So there was uh, an AD um, who just started. And the first thing she saw, um, this is, uh, Vic Peckett was me just going off on one and I never lose it. You've never known me angry. I just, I was like, why the fuck do I, I don't need her. Why am I, what, what's that? And he said, he just listened to it. And then he said, Andrew, just, just don't be a cunt and get on with it. And it was great. And it, that's the sort of, I'm, I'm not so, I don't need, you know, the say something nice, then give the feedback, then say, I just need straight feedback. And I love that. And I'll love you more for it. And I, we get on like, we got on like a house on fire. It was a great leader. Yeah, it sounds quite nice because you paint a picture as if you completely unloaded on him for some time, but actually he nipped it in the bud. The problem was me. The problem The problem is always me. I, the problem is always, I, t- I try and take, to quote Jocko, the extreme ownership. The problem's always me. I've got a problem with someone. It's because I'm not communicating effectively. I'm not doing the work properly. It's because I'm not understanding the brief properly. The problem was me. And it was it was both that my work wasn't good enough and that, I didn't understand how to work and communicate with her properly. It's that simple. Presumably you've learned, you learned so much there. What happened there and how did you end up at Mediacom? Uh, so I went Walker Zenith Walker Mediacom. I did that classic thing of, right, Billy Big Bollocks, three years in the industry, excuse my language, I, I want to move, I want more money, I want a new position. And um, I looked around and I interviewed and there were three interviews. There were two jobs that I got, but I didn't want. One with a guy called Matt Mint, who was at Mindshare to work on Land Rover. Um, and one with a guy called Owen Wilson at Mediacom. Now that's important because I th- 
I, I truly believe that you work for people and the rest of it sort of falls into place, but you really do work for people. And I didn't like the job, so I always remember those two people. I've never met Matt Mint since, but I've always remembered his name. And the other job was a job that was an, an international role at Zenith. No problem with Zenith. I hated working in international. I think when you're... Uh, not as far up the ladder as I am now. So when you're account manager, is a lot of coordination and I hate coordination because there's, there's nothing I can really add to it. It's just spreadsheet management and it's not my skill base. So I started looking for another job. I quit without a job to go to after four months, which it was decisive. It might have been a stupid thing to do, but then I looked and Clive actually had brought together the TV and digital departments at Walker to create the screen department. I'd never learned um, TV. I was digital. And so uh, I said, look, I, I'll come back if you want. I get, I, I'm not begging, but if there's a, the, there's a role there and I can come and take it. And so I went and learned TV. So I ran TV and digital and I've, I've got that extra string to my bow and I had a big team, loved that. Then I had a disagreement with someone about something and I've... I hold, I'm quite proud at times and I felt like I'd been lied to, whether it had been the case or not. It doesn't really matter anymore and I've got full respect for everyone involved, but I felt like I was lied to, so I knew I needed to leave. But I needed to leave. It was very early into that that period and so I I, knew, I had a plan to leave from quite early within that, that employment, but I knew I needed to not have two lots of six months or a year on my, on my CV after the Zenith and then walk again. So I stuck it out, loved it, Loved it again, but once I make my mind up, I had to do it. Um, and then I spoke to a recruiter and I said, look, I don't want to go to MEC because it's south of the river and I live at North London and I want, um, and I don't want to go to Mediacom because I don't want to be just one of the numbers. It's massive. How, how can I stand out there? Then the recruiter said, look, there's a guy called Owen Wilson who's got a job for you. Uh, they've just won eBay, so they need someone to not only onboard clients. I love onboarding clients. Uh, but they also need someone to see if the, they can teach the DR team to do brands because they had separated the, the performance team and the brand team. Uh, and if they can, they'll integrate the performance team into the the wider planning unit. And so I went and did that. And it, it, I did. And we, we did end up joining the, the, the bigger department, the Connect department. And it, it, I loved it. And I'm still here. I'm, I'm, I, I never thought I'd be here this long. I'm six years in. I, the reason I'm still here is I, I love the people here. They, there's so many brilliant, intelligent people. I mean, you've spoken to Murray. I know. And Murray is an absolutely fantastic man. Forget his unbelievable skills strategic and knowledge and awareness he's just a brilliant man and there's so many of those people at me to come i could talk and I, i'm not a company man i i i'm not i'm not going to sacrifice my learning or my earning potential or whatever it is to just just for the sake of loyalty um but mediacom is the best place for me at the moment and i love it and and so so you said you love onboarding clients so i'd like to understand why that is but equally what what does your role entail nowadays at mediacom Okay, onboarding clients. I've done it, so I did it for Tesco. I've done it for a few clients. Tesco is a big one because they're they're starting again. There's a whole new normal that needs to be established, and there's so many things that you learn throughout the process. My thing is learning. I love learning. I love being wrong. I love finding out new things. And onboarding a client is here's this completely new thing that you need to get up and running straight away. And there's not a lot of precedent for how you do that. We don't. It's not just an easy process of you go, there's this, and there's then, then you do this. And but there's so many different ways of doing things. They're used to certain ways. We may have certain processes, and you have to marry it all. Super stressful. But it's that thing, you know. I'm, I'm not. A, when you bring teams together, if you want to bring a team together, don't have a pint with them. That's that's the worst thing for bringing a team together because then it just sets a precedence that the only way you're nice together and you can bond is by sacrificing your personal time in the evening over a, over an alcoholic drink if there's people who don't drink or people who'd rather be at home with their kids it's a stupid thing but you put teams through hard times that's that's where a bond comes in and that that's it's the same as a pitch that's why you love going for a pitch in the moment you might not love it all the time but actually when you come to the end of it my deepest relationships have been built on onboarding clients the difficult briefs so that's why i love onboarding clients it's just the learning my current job is great i'm a global digital director i lead mars foods and mars pet care mars pet care is massive so we're doing some really really interesting projects i can't obviously talk about too many of them but we're doing industry leading stuff and we'll publish our results soon and um again i'm learning and i love working with russia and then working with china i'm working with the states and south america and southeast asia and australia my, my days are stretched but you know you can't 
the, the, the data laws in Russia, you can't take data out of Russia. So I have to have a completely different data set up in Russia. And, but their TV is still super cheap and they get significant reach. So the benefits that some people use of the, the efficiency of targeting on digital may be nullified by that. And then you go, China, that's crazy over there. And I love what's going on over there. And, but that's a super different thing and how they, they're, they're more mobile and how they use QR codes and WeChat and how they're more used to e-commerce and how there's different behaviors expected. That's the bit of my job that I love. And so being in a more senior position, I don't have to do as much coordination, but and the decisions that I come out with my markets have big implications for lots of people. And I love just learning and, and having to meet so many people. And it's the way I speak to Russians has to be very different to the way I speak to my Chinese team, to my UK team, to the States team. So again, I'm learning about people, learning about human truths. Every day is different and I just quite enjoy it. But I also think it's a framing thing. I think you can make the most of most jobs as well. There's a lot of bits I hate, but they're the bits I learn the most from. So, you know. The cultural differences you just kind of alluded to, you wouldn't talk to one of your Chinese team members the same way you might do Russian. Have you had any uh, disaster stories there? Not really. I mean, you have to you have to just check yourself because, you know, the Chinese are very blunt. And what they say in emails, they'll say to your face. And that's the way it is. It's not offensive. But then they're also very hierarchical as well. So they may not want to speak to me. They may want to speak to my boss just because that's the way it is. And you just have to be wary. And it's more my reactions that I had my check. My disaster stories are always in my reactions and and then how what, how I choose to act on that. Um, and, it, you know, I, I'm so much better at it than before. But occasionally you go, you know, there, there's other markets like uh, where – they start the day off slowly, but then they'll work really, really late. And then you go, why, why can't they just work, be like me? Why can't everyone just be like me, right? <laughs> and so, so my, my disaster story is all about my processes and my lack of, I guess, empathy or comm skills. So, you, so you've worked global and local. And funnily enough, you mentioned earlier about Zenith international scene didn't necessarily appeal, but perhaps it was because until you, you reach high up the ladder, you get more significant role and opportunity to learn and, and to have a say. So do you have a preference with global and local and big and small clients? It's not that I didn't like Zenith. I love Zenith. I love the people there. The The job wasn't right for me. It was Maybe it was just the job within, maybe it wasn't even international. So the reason I've got this job is slightly skirting around the question is, I was meant to move to China. I I got the dream job. And I mean the dream job in our Chinese office. And we had we were all but moved. Like the contract to rent the house out was on my table. The DVD's gone, books gone, CD's gone. Then we found out my wife was pregnant. We had real difficulties getting the first one. Uh get you know, pregnant with the first one. So uh, we weren't sure if the second one would ever happen. So I had to pull the move to China. At the very last minute, and I can't tell you how last minute I'd been out there multiple times. We were looking at flats, like we'd been to look at flats in China, in Shanghai. And so I was left to stay at Mediacom. I was employed, but without a job. And so I had to look at roles. And this this job came up on Mars and it was it was brilliant. And I loved it. And so do I love, do I like global versus local? There's times where I wish I was local because... I'm doing, they're doing the planning, they're doing the activation, they're, they're speaking directly to media owners and, and actually doing the work because I'm sitting one layer above that and I miss that. But then also I'm not, I'm now the person having the conversations on how to do that as well. So it's pros and cons of both right now for my life situation. This is working. I love global because the, it, the the times and how I work with my family it, it works better and frankly working from home is better when you work at global because I don't need many face-to-face meetings because all my teams are around the world but I miss local and what was the other big or small clients so I've really loved my small clients because they rely on me more bigger clients tend to have a better idea or a different an idea of what they want to do and you tend to just activate how you do that um, whereas smaller clients tend to need you more but I think a better question or a different question is um, the glamorous clients or the non-glamorous clients all my favorite clients have been the ones that no one really wants to work on like I've, I've worked on a gambling client at a previous agency and I love that one one I get to talk about sport all day but like it people no one wanted to work on that business and you go in you make a difference they're grateful you're properly part of the team they need you and it's great so i i always say go for the small what's the client list you don't want to work on or no one wants to work on go and find them because if everyone wants to work on nike but nike 
all the money goes into the creative and then the media is is fairly simple right it's and even if it's not then there's loads of other people to do it i had a friend who wanted to be an architect and they were really excited and they got into the, the actual business and they realized it wasn't until 20 years in the in when they were in there and before they actually be doing all the drawing all the exciting building building stuff actually what they were doing is more of the process stuff that's what it's like working on a big client and when you're more senior it's amazing and i'm not criticizing that because you learning those processes and learning that marketing knowledge and learning how that business works is equally as valuable as the glory you get as this individual being needed on a smaller team um, but i think there's a there's a lot to be said for the less glamorous clients yeah i agree I, funny enough there's a parallel there with something that dave trot said numerous times about um your point about nike and, and it's more comes down to that nike doesn't really need me doesn't really need anyone but but dave's dave's point tends to be if you're a brand in trouble you need me give me a call he doesn't want to talk to the market leader they don't need him no and that's exactly it and it's and it's and then you get to then the the reason is that it's not ego it's more what is what are my values what do i believe in and then you're constantly testing that you're constantly going why do i believe in that rather than i'm just doing someone else's beliefs with maybe with a little bit of a shine because of my input but actually i'm just following i'm just following the line I want to touch on digital and I'm doing bunny ears here when I say digital. You you kindly donated a brilliant isolated talk um, a few weeks ago and you mentioned that the internet exists as a dangerous counter-cultural tool. What did you mean by that? Can you elaborate for, for anyone listening who hasn't seen your talk? The, the digital thing is hard. I, th- I find my job from a moral point of view very difficult to justify. I, I've a strong i was brought up to have a strong moral standpoint uh and i do it obviously there's gray areas and everything but there there is it's easy to classify a lot of what's right and a lot of what's wrong and my point on the internet is to drive society forward i believe that you need some form of you need rub you need two things that are rubbing together because that that's where the spark of creativity f- comes from if, if, when you go on holiday to dead towns it's full of the same types of people right there's no excitement there's no spark you you go to places where people are bored or who take loads of drugs or who where there's high levels of pregnancies because everyone's the same nothing changes and so you need places where different people can be and where they meet is where the spark of culture comes from. So I use the example of music. So, you know, it's very easy to see in punk where you've got a very right-wing government and then mass unemployment. Um, so you've got a spark there of anger. You've got a spark there of of people haven't got much money, but then they can create this angry music out of this garage band, which then challenges points of view. I use the example of first wave skinheads because there's two waves of skinheads. Obviously, there's the uh, early 60s skinheads, which weren't the racist type, the EDL type that we're seeing now. They, they were, you know, they had your mods, your rockers, your skinheads. And that what they did was they came out of London where they we had lots of West Indian immigrants, first generation West Indian immigrants who were living in the same deprived areas of London as these white working class kids. And so they started to share the music. And so the fashion started to share, but also the beats and the rhythm started to share. And suddenly that that became music, um, a music movement and a, a fashion movement. And then a, a point of view that we, and, it, and a point of view on acceptance that we still see today. So there needs to be rub, but the internet doesn't allow that. The problem with the internet is, I think, multiple um, is on multiple levels one it's so easy to go and publish anything right i i publish rubbish all the time or whether it's a tweet whether it's an article on linkedin whether it's a podcast right i've got no training in how to do it that's great there's loads of grassroots people who are really good but it means there's an enormous amount of guff but it also means that it means there's an enormous amount of guff it's very difficult to stop people copying content so it's very difficult to stop the barrage of content and find out what's true as well and then i think it's also very difficult to have borderlines whether it's geographic or whether it's class or whatever it is where some people are and some people aren't and i think that's needed frankly i think there's places where people can go and occupy and have an educated point of view and you know my my ism i've very consciously classist i think at times i find it very difficult anyway i, I think we need to um, have places where people can be and where there's curation where there's editing and where we know there's trusted sources and that goes back and then I, I had the idea of the three different types of the internet and um, that we were talking about their services which is your internet of things which is your bank transfers which is the the functional under the ground internet that we don't see 
we don't interact with, or we do interact with, but we interact with the thing that is powered by the internet, then I think there needs to be a content, a middle bit, which is basically what, what we would hope newspapers would be, where there's regulation, where it's regulated by industry and government bodies, where there's editing, where adverts are chosen, where they're not flooded with internet, what, what the dream of the internet is. And then there's a, a cowboy internet where you shove loads of tracking and you shove loads of ads in there and you can get... all all of the rubbish into there, which is great for just being en- like lowbrow entertainment. We all need that sometimes. But when we're going for a place where we know there's truth and there's educated opinion, where we're looking to expand our echo chamber, that's where we're going. Not where an algorithm on a popular social media network or video network is just feeding us more of the same stuff or trying to enrage us to increase our engagement, to increase how many ads we see. Leave that to the the place where we know there's lack of trust. Let's have a separate place where we can have trust and expand our, our vision. It's never going to happen um, because the it's really hard to regulate all the people who are powering the internet. I mean, there's a few obvious players, but and the the way that they're entangled in government and way they entangle their services to make them very difficult to detangle means that we're in for a, a rough few years, I think. You hit on something there with algorithms and that the echo chamber that exists. I think a starting point would be to have an algorithm that displays nobody who bought this has ever bought that. Oh, that's interesting. Just to add some randomness back in because it is too much of an echo chamber. So I've had two ideas on that. One, any any company that uses an algorithm to select or even deselect media needs to be classified as a media company, not an engineering or a social company, because they are selecting and editing what people see. So they need to be held to regulatory guidelines or, or, or wherever it is, regulations. And the second one is who, there, there needs to be companies that come out and say, we will mess up your tracking and your algorithm. Just give us a few logins and we will flood that algorithm with random selections of 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 things so that you you are not being tracked so your data is devalued uh, and so they have to rethink how they approach people because we went from a place where there was valued content and people there was a value exchange between the content and then being tracked but now there's so much content that actually all the value that is being created is just purely in the data data harvesting just stealing data from us now i know that powers free services like email like Google Maps, and I'm not having, I'm, I'm really not having to go at any particular company. It's just the the way that people are being used and what they're being shown, f- purely for the sake of growth and revenue, isn't healthy for society. And that's that's the problem I'm trying to solve with the isolated talk about how we need to go back to culture, editing, um, and trust, which the internet doesn't tr- cause. And I tell you, what the challenge with that in my role is, is if there are so many platforms where there's so little trust, then how can we expect? brands um to have the same impact that they do on tv or elsewhere when they don't people don't trust the medium they don't trust the content either side of the ad and they don't trust the ads that are next to it like there's a big thing to say there's a big part of tv is the content that it's next to and the 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 minimum required quality of content for the majority of channels is high compared to the internet. The ads that you're next to makes a massive difference. And I think there's a massive signifier effect on them. Well, there is a signifier effect of people know that it costs a lot of money to go on TV or to out of home. So it really feels like they're spending money to get a good message out to you. Whereas you can spend 10p on the internet and get a message to people and people know that. And so it reduces trust. And so that's something that we have to overcome. And so the, the equivalency of eyeballs across channels is something that people really need to take more of a focus on, I think. Mediacom obviously do a great job with the econometrics and things like that, but I think it, it's something that we don't really talk about enough. Yeah, you're right. And I think that signaling effect is is also true but when you look at broadcast versus targeting. I mean, if I, if I have a message targeted just at me and only I've heard it, that's going to carry less trust than if someone's announced something to thousands of people. They've got skin in the game there. They've, they've made a call to thousands of other people all saying the same thing. They've got a lot more to lose. Yeah, it's great for DR, for telling me to buy a product that I may have been buying anyway. But if you ask people their favorite adverts, some nerds will have some digital ads. And there was an amazing 3M one in Russia where they asked you to go to the Post-it website and then they bought um, billboards across the top, po- the most popular websites in Russia. So that, And then they retargeted you with a Post-it with your to-do list on it. Brilliant. Yeah. Obviously, you have to get the user to do something, but I love that. But the majority of people's favorite adverts are ones that they've been able to talk about their friends with, not some... DCO, one of a million ads that randomly puts together a call to action and, a, and an image to just to try and get 
half a second of viewability. That's not that's not what we do. And I th- let's start by making ads more expensive. I think that's yeah. a, that'll be a good start. <laughs> it would certainly help. The reason we started isolated talks was was to was to really help the Samaritans. And I'm not you know ashamed at all to say that I started to to really feel um, kind of higher levels of anxiety than normal at the start of lockdown. And I felt these kind of feeling that I'd hadn't felt for for a few years, albeit with my own history of, of issues with depression. How have you found lockdown? Because you're very open with your previous struggles with with depression. Has it been testing? Hmm. Um, yes and no. Uh, so exactly a year and 11 days ago, we found out uh, my mum, my mum phoned me on a Friday and said, don't panic. But I was driving, I couldn't use my uh, left foot and I dinged the car. I got taken to hospital, not because of the car, because of not being able to use the left foot. They found the tumor. Uh, a week later from that, they found 12 tumors in 12 different places and they were all stage four, level three or level three, stage four. So they were the worst they could be on both measures. And, uh, the cancer, the causal cancer was esophageal. So it was just rising through a throat. And then for six months, I watched the die. Um, now you pair that going back to the point on why we didn't go to China when we had the pregnancy and the days were merging of when mum was going to die and when the baby was going to be born. So this was, and I was starting a new job. So they were all around the same time about a year ago. And it was a nightmare, frankly, because you, you go, well, as the weeks get closer, you go, well, what if my wife, my uh, amazing wife, Emma, goes into labor on the day of the funeral? What what, what do you prioritize? What do you do? I, I don't know the answer. And no one knows the answer. And everyone's just a bit, when you ask people, they're just a bit like, well, you, you can't know the answer. So we watched her slowly die. Like we were watching, she, uh, one of her favorite things was Queer Eye. So we, she used to come over to our house, but I've got three steps in front of my house and we had to stop by episode four because she didn't have the strength to climb, even with the two, two you know, me and my dad to help her up. And then she, they put her in a hospital bed and then when we could still have a chat with her, but she couldn't go outside. And then she lied down and basically didn't get up again. And we went over the day before, uh, this on November 26th, we went over and she couldn't swallow because the cancer was doing all sorts to her throat. And she, um, you could tell she could hear you, but she was choking on her own just spit and uh, couldn't open her eyes and was just fetal. Basically said goodbye. And then got home and a few hours later, Emma's contract, contraction started and wanted a home birth. So from 10 till 3, we were in a pool trying to give birth. It wasn't working, so they blue-lighted us to Lister, the amazing hospital in Stevenage, full of most amazing people. Had the baby at 6. Incredibly stressful. Uh, I, I hate feeling useless. I like to think I could, but there's nothing a man can do during birth apart from just try and be nice but not get in the way. Like, it's really difficult for men. Um, then, so that was at 6. At 2, I got the call to say, Mama, gone. Um, so that was a day. I'm not going to lie. That was a day I'll never forget, November uh, the 27th. And so then I had a new baby. I had a three-year-old. I had dad to deal with. Dad's disabled. And I, so I, I haven't had normal for a long time. And so we had the funeral on the 13th of December. Had my All the time I had my bereavement slash parental leave, came back for a couple of weeks. And then COVID started. So I, I And I've been in therapy the whole time. And I, I'll tell you why I've been in therapy. I, I didn't cry at mum's funeral. I didn't feel sad and that is the worst fucking feeling i've ever had is my mum is in a was in an amazing wicker casket in front of me people around me are bawling my wife is 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 in bits my dad's in bits my brother's in bits and i'm there not feeling and i tell you, and I, I i wanted to go to therapy and go why i love my mum more than anything you know she gave so much for me why couldn't i even be sad that she isn't with us wasn't able to see this girl and I tell you, when I was 13, I went down, uh, we had a crash. Dad had gone down to make tea for my mum. And uh, he had had a heart attack and he'd fallen face first into the oven, right? And he, he got brain damaged that night. I remember going down and as you go down the stairs, you could see the door. And I remember seeing a massive pool of blood, half the kitchen with the, the glass from the kitchen. And and there was just a, a, a hole where dad's head had been on the floor where it was clean. And it's cracked on, but at that point I was 13 and that was the point where I suddenly, I I lost my childhood and I suddenly had to step up and I had to take responsibility. And that was a point where I started to bottle up my feelings and I'm really good at bottling my feelings to the point where it's unhealthy now and I don't feel 
I don't feel like I feel really strong when things get really strong. I feel, but in the middle, I just, I just don't feel things. And it, which makes things like empathy really difficult. Cause I'm not able to feel if you're sad and crying to me now, Giles, I can't, I don't feel that, but I've become very good at observing that behavior, but I didn't know how to deal with this yeah. with all, all the pressure of not having a childhood. Like I can't remember anything from before I was 13. Right. And so I used to self harm. I never used to cut. I used to get a ruler and scrape my arm because the, it's easy to get, you can hide that far easier than a cut and it doesn't leave scars. Yeah. And, and, and so I've, I've dealt with depression and actually hurting myself is, is a very good way to make me feel because I can translate my, my physical, my mental pain into physical pain. And that's where the Ironman came in. I signed up to do the, I did a hundred K run and the Ironman. And I literally, I did the Ironman with a broken foot. And I had um, a hernia and I, I just made it through because pain yeah. is something that provides me with a lot of comfort. And what I found, and the point, the reason why I'm telling you this is not just I, 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 you know, because I'm, I'm very open about this stuff and I'll talk to anyone about it, but it's because my method of dealing with it by putting myself through pain, by devoting myself completely to others and not helping myself wasn't good enough to deal with the pain of having a newborn, dealing with a three-year-old, having to look after my wife post-birth covid and my mum dying and my dad not having his lifetime partner who he, he relied on um and I, I i i just couldn't deal with it and my therapist has helped me just understand that i need to make time for myself that i need my creative outlet and that i need to learn to recognize feelings and things so it's hard when you ask have, how have i dealt with covid i've had therapy throughout but i haven't had a a, a baseline for a long time uh, so I don't know what good would have looked like. I don't know what bad would have looked like, but I've dealt with it well. Uh, I've had great support. You've been amazing. I've got a few friends who've just been there who I've never, who I've not really needed, but I've known have been there. And that's as much support as, as, as being on a phone or something. And I'm really, the other side is I'm really enjoying COVID. I love spending time with my family. I love my family. It's, that's my thing. I won't sacrifice anything for my family. So I've really enjoyed that. I really enjoy drawing and painting again and running again. And uh, so I've, I've, it's taken mum dying and COVID for me to realize that I need to look after myself. So in a way it's helped more than anything. So COVID has been a good thing for me. Wow. It is interesting though, because I'm, I'm not going to go, you know, like for like here at all, but it's funny how it can take something really tragic for you to kind of reset. I know for me, when I've had a you know an issue in the past or something's happened in my life, I've actually found it quite retrospectively. It made it quite easy to kind of reframe or add perspective yeah. to other things in my life. And I think if we can all take some perspective out of this, even on any level, so it doesn't even have to be um, as significant or as deep, but even the trivial things, so even just enjoying being able to uh, speak into Beth, who you now know at Gasp, she's in yeah. yeah, she's in Cork, and they've opened pubs and so her and her girlfriend went to the pub, and it just sounded like it was just the best night ever, just to yeah. go out and have a pint, and that's that's completely trivial versus everything you've just touched on, but it but but it's things like that <laughs> yeah. that now have new perspective, so it's it's um yeah, I suppose we have to take as many positives out of it as we can. I don't think it's trivial. And the reason I don't think it's trivial is when my three-year-old bumps her head, that's the worst pain she's ever had in her life. And so that is the worst yeah. thing that's ever happened. Right. So yeah, yeah, I've been lucky relative. that I've, been, yeah, I've been lucky that I've been through these things because then when some, some rubbish happens at work, I can go, do you know what? I've been through deeper stuff than this. And you know, there's all those, a smooth, uh, what is it, you know, a smooth sailor never made a skilled sailor, all that sort of stuff. I've got, I've got a lot of cap coping mechanisms and I've got a lot of bad ones and, um, it's enabled me, I, it's a leveler, all that stuff. And it just go, it lets you go, what is important to me? Is it staying late at work so I can do more work so I can look better? Is it chasing that promotion? No, no, it's not. It's my family. It, that's the most important thing to me. Amazing. I've got a couple of listener questions for you, ASD. Yeah. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but we still have two for you. So Sarah asks, um, brands like Starbucks and Coca-Cola are currently pulling Facebook ads. What do you think of this? Is it any more than some short-term virtue signaling? And what does it mean for digital? It's a good question, Sarah. And I'm, I feel like I'm being led in a direction. I'm partially with you. I think there's a lot of work to be done. Now, my, my job is not to tell my, not to give a political stance for my clients, which I find very difficult because I've got very strong opinions. I feel for Facebook and Twitter 
uh, those in particular, because the sheer volume of what they have to deal with makes it impossible, literally impossible, to manage and edit. And and you've also got to take the point of view in the Facebook's point of view is free speech. Everyone should have free speech. Um, the problem is there's no consequences on Facebook and and. Well, actually, there are consequences because the the way Facebook works, right, is is um, there's two types of content that work. There's content that makes you engage, so that makes you stay on longer, and then there's advertising, which is where they get the money. It's a symb- it's a it's a um, codependent relationship, and actually, the the content that makes you stay on, engages you, is would be porn, but they don't allow it, and it it's political stuff to make you angry, and it's stuff to make you laugh, very emotive content. And so, actually, if you've got a strong p- opinion that makes people emotive, it's more likely to be surfaced because you're more likely to stay on because it drives revenue. So they've got a difficult one. We're difficult in the terms of if you look at it from pure business growth. But I feel also for Facebook in that people are targeting Facebook because it's, it's hashtag stop the hate. But if it's about stop the hate, then you need to examine your press plans. You need to examine every site that you're going on in the open exchange. You're not going to, but I, I, I think there's massive value in brands uh, examining where they put their money because it's it, – Brands fund the content that drives society. We've got, we can't forget that Adver- advertising is needed to create everything that we see, everything um, that we watch. And people forget that. They think that we can, now we can block adverts or we, we can avoid adverts. So that's what we should be doing. No, we need better adverts and we need better funding of content. And suddenly this will all go away because actually a lot of the stupid stuff we see in the press, like we use the press example, there's p- papers that I'm not politically aligned to, which I, th- I think are, are wrong, morally wrong. And But the reason they're doing that is because it sells papers and it, it's the clickbait title sells papers. And that, that's just what we have to deal with. And so um, publishers have to, advertisers have to take responsibility for that. And so this stop the hate thing, it, it feels... Uh, partially a bit of just a PR move look how look how good we are but we're still spending on places where hate is is driven from and then you've also got to flip it the other way is you can stop the hate by stopping your budget but where where is your money going and what are you funding in a positive way and they need to consider that yeah it's a it's a complex one it's a really complex one it's really complex. So the it's whole ecosystem is set up for that and it's not just exclusive to Facebook they just happen to be the the bigger player I suppose yeah yeah good question good answer and question two is is from mark and i know mark he's a spurs fan and he asks uh, would you rather see spurs win the league again or wales win a major trophy wales win a major trophy oh, you've, got, you've got to understand you've got to understand <laughs> wales is a tiny nation with the poorest nation in western europe right we don't have money england has got more rugby players across all levels than the rest of the countries in the world put together all the other rugby players in the world put together. England should be winning the Rugby World Cup all the time. Wales are the current Six Nation Grand Slam champions. Admittedly, this year's <laughs> one got cancelled and we had lost some games. But if, but literally, and that fills me with so much happiness. The only football game I've ever cried at was uh, the Wales 3, Belgium 1 in the Euros, which was four years ago today. Uh, and Wales just... I don't know whether I put, I've put I've invested more in that identity since I've left because I'm 33 now and left when I was 18. I, I miss it every single day. I miss the people. I miss the land. I miss not being around so many English people, um, and that is racist. And I, I I will hold my hands up with that. It, Wales all day long. I love Spurs, uh, but that's assimilated. That's Batman. I'm Bane is Wales for me. I was born in the darkness. Got it. Nice. Um, the the final part of the interview then then mate is the um is our four pertinent poses uh, number one being what advice would you give to your younger self turn up for your McDonald's shift earlier yeah uh, well, yeah um well no not earlier because I'm being a um robbery so thanks for that mate <laughs> you might be a millionaire <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true um the, the the thing with that though is that is asking what is you could also say what do you regret and what would you change I don't regret much. I don't regret much because it's maybe who I am today. I wouldn't be here with any, without any of the mistakes I made. I'd maybe make more mistakes, maybe be kinder to people, take more risks. I think use your 20s to make mistakes, learn way more skills, work hard, but don't sacrifice things for people who don't value you um, and find the right boss. Finding the right boss is so important and, and learn to communicate. If it was if you were, if it was very strictly, I'd say read the 48 Laws of Power. I got a um uh, I'm a big fan of 
of giving people a chance, right? People who don't normally get a chance. We had the work experience boy come in. He was, he was, he'd come out of prison the previous Tuesday and we were talking about books and he said there was a book they got banned from his prison, The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. And it's brilliant. It, it's a bit The Prince Machiavelli. Um, if you look at it as being very manipulative and I don't, it's not like the game, the game feels dirty, but this is more, these are potentially human truths and this is how people work. And I, I, I'll give you an example, actually. I started reading it and um, my boss at the time had stopped speaking to me. I was on a bit of a high. I'd won 30 under 30, which you haven't mentioned, but thank you. I'd won the campaign 30 <laughs> under 30. I'd, uh, I was nominated for something else and I'd, I was being sent off to Cannes to do a panel. Like my ego was stupid. Um, and my boss stopped speaking to me. I think the second law is never outshine the master. And it, it was purely because she didn't feel like she could get any value. Like I was being better than her and that I wasn't, uh, she wasn't able to help me. So I need, just needed to reframe that. And as soon as I did, we, she was back on board and we got on like house and fire. And it's things like that. It's not being manipulative. It's just learning how to work with people. So read that. Be nice to people. That's it. Cool. Well, that's our number three, actually, is books. So let's do number two first. So if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Clicks. It would probably be clicks, just because I spent... Um, it sounds stupid, but it clicks don't indicate anything. Any sort of engagement metric, because there was an amazing stat from uh, 2009 where I think it was 8% of clicks are done by 85% of people, showing that the, there are clickers, there are engagers, um, but it... it it, there are also people who are not engaged, but they're still taking value out of your ad campaign. So and there's a wider point on vanity metrics, measure versus monitor. Um, I just, I think a lot of things, if you focus on effectiveness, then you do a lot better work and clicks is the start of that. Yeah, agreed. I mean, they lack context, don't they? Clicks. So, mm. uh, Well, number three then, any books you would recommend? So we've had one. Well, The 40 Loves Power is really good. Um, the Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell is my all-time favorite book. It's an ex- exploration of of the there's a ver- there's a myth the, the myth of the hero is common in every culture and where that comes from and it's absolutely fantastic. It's just super interesting. I mean, I could talk about books for for hours. And that's why I'm going to stop there. I'm reading Mike Tyson's autobiography at the moment, and I'm, I rarely read sports biographies, but this is brilliant. It's open. I think he's the most interesting man in the world. Genuinely very good. I've got Rakeem's book, Sweat the Technique, afterwards off, um, after that. But I, I just, there's so many books that have changed my life. I've got a link of all the books I've read and the best quotes I've taken out of them, which I can share with you or anyone listening if they want. Yeah, well, send that over. I'll add it on to this episode. Um, and then people can find it that way. Is is Tyson going to make a comeback? Is that true? I hope not. No, I hope so not. No. So my my hero is Joe Kazagi, and because he is, I think top ten pound for pound boxer who's ever lived. You know, ten years never lost a fight. Ten year world champion across multiple weight classes. Um, I, I'm real fighter. Uh, and Tyson has a legacy. And I, I, the reason I bring up Kazagi is there were talks of him coming back and he just said, that, ridiculous, I don't need, I've got, what What more do I need to do? And Tyson might need the money though. Yeah, that's the sad truth. The fourth then, ASD, is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? I've got two people. I've got a main person and a sub person. So, um, there's a lot of people talking about diversity in the industry and it really winds me up because that is as much um, virtue signaling as the stop the hate stuff really but there is someone at Mediacom called Nancy Langthorne who is the head of diversity inclusion and future talent who's the most amazing person uh, in the building and she has paved the way for so many people who would not have even known about the media industry um, to get in and she's focused on the equity part of diversity where it's given equal opportunity of results so we find ways to put people up if they need to travel from far away we help people with with travel money if they literally don't have a penny to their name all of that stuff and we help them prepare for this job we help them prepare with cvs we give them and we work with charities to find people who drop out of school we work with schools and it's all down to Nancy she's the most amazing person I love her to bits and she's normal as well there's not a lot of normal people in the industry I I love her um, and I think she's absolutely brilliant and I think she doesn't get the praise because she doesn't talk about it she does it 
And I, I think she's absolutely brilliant. My other one without sucking up is you. I think you're absolutely brilliant. I think <laughs> you're, I'm being serious, your, your ability to take an idea, scale it simply, make it beautiful and make it impactful, whether it's delusions of brandier, whether it's uh, gasp, whether it's isolated talks or whether this, whether it's this podcast, I have no idea where you stole this idea from, but the, um, <laughs> I, I think you're a very talented person. I think you're very humble and I think you don't accept the recognition that you have or deserve. So it's also dedicated to you. There's a, there's a first for everything. Christ. Thanks. Mate. That's really, <laughs> that's really, really kind. kind. That's really kind. Thank you. So, so this episode is very proudly dedicated to Nancy Lingthorne and um, slightly embarrassingly dedicated to uh, yours truly. So as a final call to action, everyone listening, if they head over to this episode, we'll share everything discussed in the last hour. Um, all of the book recommendations and the links that ASD is going to ping over uh, both of ASD's wonderful podcasts. How else can people get more ASD? I mean, I talk rubbish on at tweets by ASD. I mean, it, I get told off by marketing at MediaCon often. Uh, uh, so Are you really? I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just because I might say something stupid and it might be related to some client work. Uh, yeah, so tweets by ASD. I don't like doing panels or stuff on stages because i don't think you people really talk about that much interesting stuff i shouldn't really say that but yeah the, the show connected i do with sue uniman is really 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 good um we talk to the most interesting people that, that we've got a lot of crossover with guests so you can hear different different questions set for those guests we've got echoes of glory which is a podcast i set up nine years ago before podcasting was cool once the 23rd most popular sports podcast in the world it's amazing it's higher than stone cold steve austin um uh, so there's that I've also done a running one where we interviewed elite runners endurance runners and we've done I've done I do the, the podcast for Wackle every year but if you I mean I don't know why you would want to I, I publish on LinkedIn every now and then but you can email me if you, if anyone wants to chat about anything I'm more than happy to help anyone so andrew.sperry-doors at mediacom.com is where you can find me just drop me a note and I'll help anyone perfect well that's all there uh, well thanks for joining us mate it's it's been um it's been a real pleasure no, thank you for the opportunity. I don't, I don't feel worthy if you compare to the list, but I'm, I'm super grateful. So thank you. No, that's nonsense, mate. Um, and finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this, please do share it and review the pod. We truly value your support. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's really easy to find Gasp online. Check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try.